wrong button. <laughs> but it's already going so well. We're, 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 we're recording now. And uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the inaugural episode of uh, the Clifton Duncan podcast. Hashtag CDP. Uh, today, I'm joined by the lovely co-host of Unsafe Space with her friend uh, Carter Laren. Uh, this is the wonderful, the happily married uh, Carrie Smith. <laughs> How are you doing today, Carrie? Hi, Clifton. I'm good. It's always a good day when I can hear your voice. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that, and, uh, and your your southern twang touches a little part of me as well. So it's it's a mutual uh, the mutual uh, admiration uh, society, as I say. Mm-hmm. But, I'm so uh, excited you had me here on your first one, and I hope I can do it justice. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I do feel like nobody would know who I am if it weren't for you. And uh, I'll share with uh, with the audience uh, the as. Uh, small or large as they may be, uh, the story of our initial meeting, which was very much, um, I, I feel like it was very much by chance. Um, I was in, I relocated from New York City uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, for reasons uh, we, we may get into um, in a few minutes. But um, when all the unrest and everything started, um, I began to notice how, uh, I mean, I don't think there's anybody that watched the the initial footage that was that was released about uh, of George Floyd and what happened to him, and mm-hmm. they weren't they didn't feel some kind of way about it. But I saw the, that the reaction to it afterward, especially within my industry, the entertainment industry, or at least my former industry, I, I have no idea anymore. But um, you know, I was getting messages from you know aggrieved uh, progressive white women who um, were upset about how hard my life must obviously be because of my skin color, which the oh. flip side of that, of course, is how, how much better their lives are um, because they happen to be white. But I, I began to see, you know, we were getting emails from our unions. I was getting, I was seeing all of these prominent um, stars and figures within our industry who were signing on to these kinds of things. And it was happening so rapidly. And it was also in the midst of, all of these COVID mitigations, which have proven extremely effective. And I just said, there are so many things going on and I feel like I have to say something, I have to do something because no one ever says or does something. And I messaged two people. I messaged uh, uh, James Lindsay and I messaged you. Um, James got back to me first. Uh, Uh, (laughs) That's not surprising. uh, I I take a while. Anybody watching, I do take a while, but I will get back to you. Well, initially you you were kind of like, yeah, you know, I don't really know, but I, w- I was so insistent because I felt so strongly that uh, you know, something something really wrong is going on, and it just so happens that where were you, you were driving from Texas or something like that, I think. Oh yeah, or I was from driving somewhere. from South Carolina back to Texas. from South Carolina back to Texas, right? And you just happened to be with your lovely Bo, a, a wonderfully talented musician um, uh, who I haven't forgotten about, and who I, who I <laughs> think is fantastic. Um, <laughs> And, you know, you you took the time to sit down with me and kind of hear me out. And um, I feel like um, that sort of was the catalyst for me becoming uh, what I jokingly refer to as a mediocre Twitter personality. But, <laughs> um, you know, but it's it's just been so it's been so great um, connecting with you and Hello Tiger and, and with like minded um, individuals. And um, so really, I guess I guess. I would open up these these first few minutes by by thanking you for your generosity and your openness and for willing to kind of um, and for willing to to hear me out and kind of put me on in a way. Well, first of all, sorry about my dog. 
And secondly, <laughs> thank you for meeting with me. Because not everybody's that, I mean, even though you're writing to me or to James or whoever, it doesn't mean that you want to get together. It's some people are not that open or impulsive. And I was, we were driving. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I'm going through Atlanta. Let's just meet up. I love meeting people in, in real life. It, I mean, I like meeting, I've met a lot of friends in the past couple years online. Um, but I've also, I love it when I can make those connections in person. And so, for example, we just got back from Idaho. My, he's now my husband. He uh, yes. had a show up there. And so we just did a last minute kind of meet up with anybody on Twitter or Facebook who wanted to get together uh, in the, in the Washington area where we were or the last night we were there. And it was great just to get to, to meet people. And I think people are, are starving for, well, first they're starving for authenticity. They're starving for truth. They're starving for a place where they can talk to someone and it's truly a, a safe space in that it's an unsafe space <laughs> and that you can say anything or you can, you can have these wrong thoughts or you can have, you ex can express your actual thoughts with people who aren't judgmental. And, and then as, with the lockdowns in particular, I think it's made people even hungry for that. It's made me hungry for that. So I'm glad that you were like, yeah, I'll meet up with this, this weirdo who's like, well, just meet me in person. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, you know, I, I think, um, <clears throat> I think you kind of you kind of nailed it. There's a there's a hunger for that kind of thing. And I and as you were speaking, I was thinking how interesting it is that um, the concepts of of authenticity and freedom are being um, they're they're gradually being viewed or painted as unsafe. You know what I mean? It's it's this idea that safety is conformity. Safety is. Um, I mean, we all we all. Um, and actors know this. I mean, actors know this. I mean, uh, Marlon Brando gave a great interview with, um, oh, I want to say it was Dick Cavett. And uh, he was talking about, and all the great acting teachers talk about this as well, is that, you know, every every human being in their day-to-day -day lives, you know, we are always acting. We're putting on roles. We're, you know, we're we're not the same person we are at work, for example, as we are in in the bedroom. <laughs> I certainly, at least I certainly hope not, unless you're, unless you're Harvey Weinstein. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> gross. <laughs> but, but you know we're always playing roles. We're always we're always playing roles, and I, and I think that now, as you said, uh, particularly in the wake of um, you know lockdowns and all these COVID mitigations, um, the it, it just makes me come back to this idea of the human spirit. And maybe this is my particular sensibility as an artist, as an actor. Part of my job, I've said this to you before as well, but I said this to others, is that you know the cornerstones of what I do. Um, and, and, and let me be clear, Barack Obama, let me be clear. Um, I, I understand that my, that where I, where I stand in terms of the prioritization of what's important and what, and what is not as an actor is very low. I'm not curing cancer. I'm not uh, saving babies from imminent death. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, you know, I, I, I try to make an honest living and I, and I enjoy what I do and I take very, and I take great pride in that. And part of my thing is that I've always sort of been, um, um, well, I guess sort of bleeding heart and, um, mm -hmm. and sensitive and sort of empathetic and curious. And I feel like a lot of that is, is lost right now, um, especially with everything that's going on. But part of it is just, it, it's, it's an attraction to the human spirit and the, and the incorrigibility and uh, of, of the human spirit. Like you can't, you can't stifle it. You can't keep it down. You can't, 
you can't try to clamp down on it because some somehow or other it's just too powerful it's going to find a way to to burst forth somehow and i and i feel like over the last year um you know we were talking about this before we got on before we um you know went live um i really feel like the pandemic has highlighted um, the need for that sort of human connection the need for people to interact, the need for people to connect, to have these emotional experiences, these memories, um, yeah. just to be human and to live and to be alive and to feel their own vitality. And um, as, as an actor, especially, it's my job to be a conduit for those kinds of things, the good things and the bad, the, the, the beautiful and what's ugly about um, the human experience. And um, I feel like we're, we're getting a huge demonstration about what's ugly and what's dark oh, about yeah. the human experience right right now. We are. And you, you're right. It's, it's people need, well, first of all, what you do as an artist is also very important. I agree with you that where we put uh, celebrities or, you know, actors and singers and stuff on the cultural hierarchy in terms of how we value them and celebrate them is skewed. I definitely think they're way up yeah. here and like, we don't have award shows for doctors. Maybe we'll start after the COVID year. <laughs> I mean, Anthony Fauci, he's, but, he's, due, he's, he's due for that. He's due for that Oscar right? at some point. Oh, uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but what actors do is very important. You help us connect to common humanity, our common humanity. And like you said, I think you have to be really in touch with that and really in touch with the human spirit to be a good actor and to be a, you're sort of a scientist of, you study people and, mm -hmm. and you study all the human expression and and all the myriad of ways that we express ourselves and and conflicting emotions and all that stuff but the, and then secondly what you're saying about community is we just read so on unsafe space we do a book club and last year we did a lot of the dystopian fiction classics and one of the books we did was fahrenheit 451 mm -hmm. and there's a part in that book where the main character he meets this sort of free-spirited young woman and he's sort of trying to understand why she's so different and it's weird it's almost like imagine uh i guess a parallel to today or an analogy to, to today would be if everybody was vaxxed and you meet one unvaxxed person you're like what mm. <laughs> and but they were raised in an unvaxxed family and so it's sort of like that he meets this one wrong thinker and she starts telling him how her uncle said there used to be porches and they got rid of all the porches mm. So that people wouldn't sit and he said why so that people wouldn't sit out there talking yeah you and, know what's funny about that is uh, i'm sorry to cut you off but yeah um, go ahead you know i'm i'm, I'm down in atlanta and uh, one of the things that i love about the the south as opposed to the sort of harsh asphalt um uh, strictures of of the northeast you know or new york city which is where i was for uh, a decade and a half is that people do, people are very expressive. They, they talk to each other down here. And, and I was overhearing a couple of guys uh, next door. This was some months ago. You know, they're doing some, they're out, they're outdoors. They're doing some yard work. They're doing some work on the house. And, um, and one of the guys was saying like, yeah, you know, it might get people off the computer. Like the power, I think the power was out. And uh, they were like, yeah, it might get people off the computer and outside and just talking to each other. And <laughs> To me, it just says, you know, and, and these are the people that, um, you know, you go to these sort of elite circles and they look down on these people. But I'm like, oh, yeah. these people, so so to speak, I mean, I hate referring to them as like sort of, you know, I'm, I'm sort of otherizing them in my language. But, you know, these sort of 
supposedly unsophisticated people with their Southern accents are, you know, they seem to be more in touch and in tune with, with what's actually important, which is yes. people getting out and talking to each yes. other and connecting with each other. And what's been so shocking to me is the, the vast numbers of people who are willing to just abandon that and to give that up and to say, you know, we don't need any more love at first sight. We don't need any more people celebrating, you know, victories with their, with their families or their friends. We don't need any more people, you know, dating and mating. We don't need any more of that for an indefinite amount of time. Like, you know, that that's not how people are built. That's not how people operate, but people yeah. need to be able to communicate and speak to each other. And I wonder if there's some sort of fear up top, so to speak, of this kind of information being uh, not information, but just, uh, people talking to each other, because what I found on the ground um, is that once you get out of a very clustered or, or cloistered blue area and you get down to talking to regular people, whether they whether they be Uber drivers, uh, servers, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've had I've had conversations with uh, with bouncers, you know, at clubs and they all kind of converge around the same the same ideas, which is that they, they say, you know, people are just trying to get on and they're trying to make, they're trying to live life. They're trying to have a good time while, you know, in the short time that they're here and um, they, they want to be in the world, you know, left alone for, for the most part, but yeah. they, they want to be in the world and, and they, they grasp things uh, more readily than I, I think uh, a lot of so-called educated people uh, uh, understand that they do. It's, it's sort of how I feel like they view children. I, I remember being 10 years old and, and, adults, you know, Hey, how are you? And I'm like, why are you talking to me like that? You know, what I mean? <laughs> like, like you sound stupid. Yeah. I'm, you, aren't you supposed to be a grown up? And I feel like, um, these, uh, I don't even know what the term to call it is, uh, whatever people say, coastal elites, people say, you know, the top 1%, whatever it is, but there's this idea or, you know, I mean, I love Thomas Sowell's, you know, the anointed, they oh, have this, I like that. yeah, well, they have this idea that they, that they have, they, and they alone have, whatever knowledge, whatever skill set, whatever uh, sensibilities and capacity is capacities are required to save the human race and to, and to save us from ourselves. And I've been heartened in the past year and a half to see just how savvy um, people are without the help of these so-called anointed people, without the help of these elites butting yeah. in and saying, we're going to micromanage your life to the extent that we are going to <laughs> We're going to be your doctor and your general your general practitioner and yeah. tell you what's best for your health. It's, it's been uh, really insane to to, uh, to to watch. Yeah, and I think you're right. People are finding ways to go around the wishes of our betters. <laughs> I just call <laughs> yeah. them our betters. <laughs> yeah, they're they're, they're they're just they're better than us. They're just better than us. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, I was looking through photos today of the Met Gala and our maskless betters in uh, all of their finery with the masked help around them. And I just think, gosh, that's so fitting for where we're at right now. And just, there's, <laughs> I can't, it almost brings me to, to tears. I'm so upset by it because you would think, you, you, you know, I'm working on a, a, an article right now. It's it's pretty long, but it's just about part of the reason it's so long is because it, it centers primarily around the contradictions of, I guess, what we would call the American left. And um, 
uh, with regards to to COVID, because and, and where do you start? It's, it's like the proverbial uh, mosquito at a nudist colony. There are so many places where they failed so, so miserably uh, in, in dealing with what you would think would be right within their wheelhouse. And here we are. We have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a.k.a. AOC, a.k.a. the airhead of Congress, um, you know, talking about tax the rich. And I understand, I mean, Matt Iglesias, that, that, that she's working on um, legislation to do just that. Um, so there is that caveat to it. But just the optics of it alone, you are at the Met Gala. Kanye West and Kim Kardashian are there with you. You know, you have a bunch of rich uh, uh I don't even want to say intelligentsia, but glitterati that are there alongside you. You are with the rich. You are you are the top one percent right it's now. Thirty thousand dollars a ticket. Exactly, and and yet you're sitting there trying to be some sort of uh, of activist for the these poorer people in which you stoke this impotent rage. You're never going to do anything for them. You've you've been pretending this entire time that you're one of them. Everyone knows that you grew up in a nice sort of middle class, upper middle class um, upbringing in the mean, you know, the mean ghettos of Westchester, New York, which if anybody knows Westchester, they know it's not like, you know, it ain't Rochester, it's Westchester. You know what I'm saying? The mean ghettos. (laughs) You know, the mean mean streets of of Westchester. Um, It's just the, the... the hypocrisy is is so appalling, but it, the, the imagery and the optics of what people are calling the help being masked and all of these, you know, people who, you know, they, they may or may not be intelligent. They may or may not be talented or gifted, but they're they're there. They're allowed to be unmasked. They are rich. They they have um, they have privileges that, you know, the, the rest of us don't. And I say all the time, it's like, dude, these COVID restrictions are for everybody else. They are not for them. It's oh, not yeah. for them. It's the, another great a piece of, of classic literature that's been so useful for me to read last year was uh, Animal Farm. It's very yeah. short. Yeah. And just I just see it constantly with the COVID restrictions is, you know, one rule for the another rule for me. It's that but in the book, it's, you know, some animals are more equal than others. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we see with this sort of the glitterati, the betters, whatever you uh, what did you say, Thomas Sowell called the anointed. I like that. Yeah. The anointed. They have an entirely different set of rules. It's like in the book where the pigs are one day, the pigs are walking around in the farmer's house wearing the farmer's clothes and. And the other animals are like, wait, I thought we weren't supposed to go in the house and wear the clothes. And I'm like, oh, new rules for us. <laughs> like, yep. Four legs, like, four legs are good. Two legs are better. They're better. Yeah. You know, and, and um, <laughs> it's just amazing that nobody can see that. But it also it also makes me wonder, like, why is it that there are certain people who who maybe they have the capacity to capacity to see this, maybe, you know, maybe it's constitutionally, you know, ingrained in them to, to see these kinds of things. Um, a lot of people become, they, their views change over time. I mean, I'm, I, I think, I mean, I'm a part of a chat group right now on Twitter and it's a, it's composed of a lot of Democrat, democratic voters or, or, you know, left-leaning individuals. And they have been shocked and appalled by what they've seen over the past year. And it keeps yeah. getting worse and worse. And I'm saying to myself, yeah. well, welcome to the party. Yeah. <laughs> you know? First time, you know that meme, first time? Yeah, this is your first time. So it just, it just it just makes me wonder because, you know, I, I know that uh, I first learned of you. You burst onto the scene for me um, 
as someone who was like, you know, I'm a liberal and I'm voting for Trump. And um, as someone in the entertainment industry, or at least formerly in the entertainment industry, uh, such as it as it was or is, um, you know, you you broke out of that. So I'm I'm curious. And 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 and, and they always say that once you break out of that, you can't. Um, you you don't really once you see everything, you never really unsee it. And um, you know, I know you've you've spoken about this in other places, but but what was your what was your sort of journey? Uh, coming yeah. to where, where, you, where, you, where you are today, where you're able to see like, oh, you know, AOC is full of shit and these, these quote unquote leftists or whatever, shit. you know, are just are nonsense and, and they're liars. Well, it's like, slow. It's a slow transformation, first of all, because once you become open to the, there's the, there's the initial kind of openness that happens, or maybe it's, it's more of a, a, a brokenness in your foundational beliefs or a crack in your foundation that then allows you to be more open-minded. And once that happens, at least in my case, there's still things I'm learning constantly. So, but at the beginning, it was more about, I was, I was in the entertainment world. I was full on social justice, true believer for two decades, ever since college, I went to Duke university. I was a science major, but at my minor was women's studies. Mm. And through women's studies, I took, and this, and this was in the late nineties. I took um, critical race theory classes. I took queer theory classes, you know, the intersectional feminism, all of that. And it started to become my religion, my worldview. I didn't realize mm. it then that it was taking the place of a religion because people, if you, you think, think about it this way, you're not going to a church. You're not going to a sacred place. You don't think you're, I'm not adopting a faith system, but I was looking back on it. Yes, it had all the hallmarks of a, of a system of faith. And they get you to slowly start to accept different tenets. There are foundational social justice beliefs that you have to accept before you can get to other ones. So mm. if it had been everything at once, I probably would have rejected it because I considered myself a liberal and this ideology is illiberal. And if I had seen it in its entirety at the beginning, like, oh, wait a minute, we're okay with violence against people who disagree with us. Like it's not liberal or we're okay with censorship. That was one of the big ones is realizing finally that I was in an ideology that was okay with censorship and, and preferred, you know, but what, what got me out, like what originally had that started that crack. Do you want me to talk about that or. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's just funny because um, well, I guess it's not funny, but I, between the two of us, you're a Christian. I'm, I'm pretty staunchly atheist. And yet, I, I know coming up from, um, from my background, it was, it, it was always like, you know, it's the Christians who are, they're closed minded, they're bigoted, yeah. um, the, the, you know, the, they're deaf to any sort of reason or logic. I mean, I remember Bill Maher, Bill Maher's Religulous uh, very clearly where you yeah, know, was, was talking great. about people who were like, or maybe it wasn't, maybe I'm misattributing it, but you know, th but there's this idea that in order for this particular religion to be effective, you have to, there was one pastor who said, uh, who was on camera, who was like, you know, you have to, you have to circumnavigate uh, the, the people's logic. And I was like, mm -hmm, <laughs> that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, they believe in this crazy sky God and they all stupid and they don't know nothing. But yet here you are saying to yourself, you know, I, I didn't realize that I was a part of this ideology. 
Um, and you've called it uh, many, many times a cult. And I want to talk more about that um, yeah. in a second. But, uh, but, but it's funny because here is somebody who is a part of um, what many secular leftists would, would, would consider a, a cult in a sense. Um, I think, I mean, I, I agree with Camille Paglia. You know, I'm an atheist, but I respect religion. And people like Chris Hitchens, you know, they're, they're, they were wonderful at um, it, it, very, very, very sharp in terms of their their ability to articulate that, I guess, the rage of the secularists, but maybe sort of missing the point in a lot of ways. And I feel like, especially with uh, what, what we've been through in the past year, I was talking to, uh, to Zuby about this as well, is that, you know, a, as someone who is an atheist, I, I am struggling to kind of find the right language or to find the right mode of thinking um, about the things that I perceive are going on in the world, because I don't know what else to describe it as, except as some sort of death of the spirit, some sort of spiritual death, which I feel like sort of, I feel like art sort of uh, can address um, if it were if it were more prioritized. But um, yeah. you know, but but it's not right now. But I do want to, I, I do want to hear more about you know what sort of cracked for you because I you know I always think about those two images I saw of you, I think you posted it on your Instagram a long time ago and I commented on it, but there was a picture you posted, you posted a picture of yourself back when you were in your social justice days. And, you know, you were, you were younger then, and you, but you're like dead behind the eyes and, and you yeah. just appeared to be the soulless vessel. But then you posted a picture of yourself, you know, post, um, post apostasy. And you're so vibrant, you're so full of life, you're so radiant and you're so full of uh, laughter and, and charm. And it's just, it's just, uh, and I kind of feel it resonates with me because I kind of feel the same way as sort of me coming out of this idea that as a black person, uh, America has a target on my back, but yeah, you know, what were the, the sort of cracks in the, the armor that you began to see? And then why, why are you so um, steadfast on referring to this movement as, as a cult? I'm very curious okay. about that. Okay. Well, uh, the cracks started when it was something emotional. And, and so sometimes when people ask me, how do I wake up a family member of mine? I, I hear from a lot of parents whose kids have been pulled into this ideology in college, like I was, or um, sometimes so many people are asking about their spouse has been pulled into it or, or friends. And what can I do? What can I, and there's no magic pill to give them, but a good bit of advice I think is you it's not going to be a list of facts. There's a great book that I read a few years ago. And if, if people haven't read it yet, they should check it out. I know it's become more popular in the past couple of years, Jonathan Heights, the righteous mind. And in that book, he gives this great analogy to, he talks about our brain as being, you could think of it like a rider on an elephant and the elephant is our emotional mind and the rider is our rational mind. And everybody, we all want to think that we rationalize our decisions that we're using our reasonable, rational mind. But most of the time he said, you know, it's our elephant that's sort of leading us and the rider's just trying to keep up and then justify things backwards. You know, like, well, this is why I did that. This is why, but a lot of times it's emotional or gut reactions to things. And if you want to change someone's mind, I think you really have to learn how to be an elephant charmer. You have to speak to that elephant mm. and you have to, you have to be able to see the left is very good at, telling stories. And it makes sense because you have a lot of open-minded, empathetic, liberal people in the arts who are all different kinds of artists, actors, writers, you know, uh, musicians, and they're in the art of storytelling and they, they're doing, they're 
when, when the art is good and you're in a time uh, like a Renaissance, they're doing what you're talking about. They're connecting, they're uh, helping us find the common humanity, universal humanity. I think what's happening right now is we're seeing the arts have, have become themselves infected with this cult-like ideology that I used to be in. And so I think the arts are suffering in terms of creativity right now, but that means there's, that just means there's room for new growth. That just means you cut off all that dead stuff and there's going to be, there's going to be some exciting things. I think there's already exciting things happening, but, um, but anyway, to, to get back to, uh, to changing minds. So emotion, conservatives tend to, when I first started interacting with conservatives a few years ago, I, they would just give me a bunch of facts and sometimes they come off as very arrogant. I mean, not that the left doesn't too, but sometimes the conservatives are more um, in the sort of, this is the facts, read it. You'll understand why. And you're wrong. It's like, okay, well, that's not going to appeal to anyone. And you have to be able to, you know what the left does? They tell, they don't just say, here are the stats. They say, let me tell you about little Billy who's affected by this policy and Billy's poor mom mm. who, you know, and they personalize it and you'll see that the best nonprofits do that too. They don't just give you stats about, about hunger in other countries. They put a kid's face on there. They make, they pick one person and they personalize it. And the right, I think it's great to have all have facts on your side. You need the facts on your side. It's, but you need to learn how to tell a story too. It's, it's sort of, you don't just do one. I think they need to get better. The left, a lot of times I think is now I'm starting to see is at least at least the modern, this version of the left that we're seeing now, they mostly just use the story and the emotion. And I don't find when I dig deeper that the facts are on the side, their side anymore. Um, but it, it would be great if conservatives could learn to borrow. So that's a long way of saying I fell down. What happened to me? I went down a rabbit hole on YouTube of what I was watching videos of uh, Trump supporters being attacked by leftists during the 2016 election. And I had not, I didn't know that was happening. And until that, and I just saw, this is back when the YouTube algorithm would actually recommend things that were not authoritative content. And so it's- Stuff that you wanted to watch. Yeah. (laughs) And so it would take me, you know, from one video to another, to another. And I just, I just started crying seeing these people who were supposed to represent me attacking other people like going to the Trump rally and waiting for them to get outside just so they can attack them and and mix it up with them. You know, it's like, that was the exact, actually I had believed the opposite narrative. And then I started looking for videos of people on the right attacking Clinton supporters and I couldn't find them. Right. There was like one guy that threw a punch at someone in a stadium once, but nothing like the other, not like throwing bricks at people, bloodying them, mobbing them, throwing eggs at them nothing like that. And so uh, that crack, that emotional moment that really made me start rethinking things. And it wasn't overnight, but I, then I started questioning, like, what do I know to be true? And shortly after that, around that time at the Black Lives Matter rally in Dallas, there was the sniper who killed six police officers. Right. And the way that my little social justice echo cham- chamber online, which was mostly entertainment, social justice, comedy people, they just, the way they reacted to that also made me emotional because there was sort of this uh, sort of, well, some white guys are going to have to die. That was sort of like, that's not that big of a deal. Mm. And, and distancing themselves, trying to distance it from Black Lives Matter, but also sort of celebrating that it happened. And that disgusted me utterly. Um, well, 
it's weird because I feel I felt like <clears throat> I think one of the unfair things that the right was doing was saying that, uh, especially with that incident down in Dallas, they were saying, well, this is this is a, a Black Lives Matter member or whatever. And it's like, you know, there, there is an organization, there is a foundation, but um, it's a bit unfair to ascribe the acts of these individuals um, to the to the entire movement. But at the same time, then you, you would also see videos of people marching through New York City, um, you know, chanting about uh, killing cops or yeah. how cops should be dead. And it's like, well, at a certain point, you can say, okay, there may... Even though, you know, maybe the founders of the movement may not endorse this particular brand of agitation, um, it, it's hard to say that uh, they haven't inspired this brand of, of agitation in this toxic sort of world. But what, but, it, but what interests me about what you've just said is that because it strikes me that it was it was an appeal to your empathy. It was an appeal to your humanity. You had to see this footage in order for it to affect you and for you to say, wait a minute, um, these are my fellow human beings and they're being treated horribly. Um, I'm, I'm studying some of the uh, works of Aristotle. I'm reading his poetics, right? Uh, excuse me, his rhetoric right now. And um, one of the things that strikes me about it is that he, his writing is actually more humanistic in a way because he writes that he's writing about persuasion and, and uh, what motivates people to change their minds. And um, he writes about how, or he argues at least, or he proposes, that the truth eventually will, will win out, that people will generally be drawn to what they perceive to be true. And I thought that was a very positive uh, view on uh, humanity, particularly in a time where we're, we're very cynical about our ability, to, our ability to comprehend things and sort of understand them. But um, it, it's, it's, it struck me because I'm like, okay, we, I think we do as people we are drawn to this idea of what's right and what's virtuous. And, um, and that's why so many people are drawn into this sort of, I guess you can, I get, as you say, cult of social justice, which because it, it, it preys on these ideas uh, or these sentiments of like, you know, these people are downtrodden, they're oppressed. And so, you know, don't you want to help them? Don't you care about them? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a weaponization of our, our, I think our innate kind of capacity uh, for empathy and wanting to embrace our, uh, our, our fellow man. But, but what's interesting is that it also triggered your curiosity in a bit, in a way you, you said, okay, I'm seeing these things. I'm reacting in an emotional way. I'm seeing how my friends are reacting. And that's also, that's also making me emotional, but you also said, you know, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole and see what else and see what else is going on. I'm going to, I'm going to dig under the hood a little bit. And, you know, I've, I've said essentially since Trump was elected, um, that there has been a dearth of curiosity and empathy um, among people. And yeah. what, what really irritates me, I mean, part of my training uh, as an actor, I mean, I went to one of the finest conservatories in, in the country, if not the world. And we were told, I was told that curiosity and empathy are the cornerstones of, of the actor's craft. You can't play a character. If you're assigned, I mean, the classic example is if you're assigned to play Hitler, how do you, I mean, be, you know, being likable, and being sympathetic are two different things, but you have to understand where you're coming from. You have to ask questions. Why did this person turn out that way? What motivated this person uh, to, to take these actions and to behave in this way? Um, how, you know, is there some kind of pain, some kind of emotional wound, some kind of psychological damage? You know, what human flaws can I glom onto um, that, can, that can make me, as you said, make it personal and say like, well, 
you know, how can I play this character? And I feel like a lot of people calling themselves actors, calling themselves artists um, are completely ill-equipped or, or unable. They just, they just don't want to exercise the same kind of um, curiosity and empathy uh, that they sometimes exhibit with their art uh, when it comes to uh, politics and, and, and oh. society. Yeah, and you know that you mentioning that that I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it reminded me I saw so many articles after Trump won. So I this had happened to me this sort of awakening or when I had that crack in my foundational beliefs happened right before the election. Then the election happened and Trump won in 2016 and I thought I was one of those people crying the 91. I thought he was a, I still believed he was a demagogue all this yeah. stuff even though even though my mind had started, it was, again, it's a slow process. My mind was open a little, but I still believe certain things to be true. I hadn't given up that belief yet that Trump is a bad person. They're a bad, you know, and, and then I started to see, so when he won, I was, I was sort of, I was hoping we could figure out why he won because it took me by surprise. Like it did a lot of people on the left. Hmm. I wanted to know why he won so we could make sure it didn't happen four years later. And I was trying to have conversations with people and everybody was sort of in the social justice world that I was in, in a state of shock. I knew friends who didn't go to work for a while because they were in such shock. You know, we've all seen hopefully that video of the Google employees are crying the day after and some of them didn't come to work. You know, it's like people yeah. were, it was like a traumatic event had happened. And part of my part, my, my way of processing that traumatic event was trying to understand how I could have been soft base, how he could win. Mm. And then while I was doing that, I was seeing article after article in my social justice world, opinion piece after opinion piece that people were sharing that was like in defense of no empathy for Trump voters. Mm -hmm. Why you shouldn't try to empathize with Trump voters. And as I read these pieces, I, was, I realized they're trying to manipulate me and they're mm. appealing to the worst part of us, the worst part of human nature. They're saying, you're feeling a lot of hatred right now. You don't empathize with these people, right? Good. Like <laughs> stewing it. And I'm like, whoa. And that was my first sort of, uh, I had always read all the opinion pieces and stuff in, in my side of things. It's yeah, righteous, you know, right on. That was the kind of stuff I shared. But those pieces that there was a spate of them that started to come out in defense of no empathy for Trump voters. And it just really, that was another eye-opening thing. Why are they trying to stoke this in me, this hatred in me? Well, that kind of leads into this um, idea of, of this movement or this ideology as, as sort of cult-like, doesn't it? Because uh, isn't one of the tenets, and I do want to do more research on this, but one of the tenets of people who are in a cult, one, they, they tend to think that they're too smart to, be, to ever be uh, uh, indoctrinated into a cult. But secondly, it's this idea that anyone who thinks differently than we do, who doesn't believe the same things that, that we do, um, is not one of us. They're one of them. And you should cut yourself off from them. You should excommunicate those people. They are bad people. So, I, yes. so I, it, it makes me curious about um, how if, if that's one of the reasons that you decided, you know what, I'm going to just go flat out and just say this is a cult. And, you know, because people have, have mentioned it as a cult before. And I don't think a lot of people um, sort of understand uh, why that is a, a relevant or even accurate descriptor. So I was, I was wondering if you could uh, I, get more into that, why you, why you began calling yes. it a cult. 
I'm happy to do this. So we did an episode <laughs> a long time ago and I, I should have refreshed my memory, but we went through all the cult characteristics and that oh, was cool. a really interesting one. But so it's, it's uh, since I've become a Christian, I've also, and sometimes in interviews, I'll see in comments, people who are like, Oh, she just left one cult and joined another. And right, yeah. I understand that point of view and that's okay. That's your point of view. And uh, I have a different one. And so I'll just explain mine. My religion, my faith, any, well, first of all, any, any ideology, any belief system can become cult-like, but Christianity at its core, like it true, like what Jesus talked about, if you do read the red words, right, you read the, what Jesus's words, it wasn't cult-like. And I don't think Christianity in, it, in, in its authentic form is cult-like. Has it, has it been cult-like at different times in history? Yes. Are, is the Westboro Baptist Church, are they cult-like? Yes. Hmm. You know, there are cult-like, there are fundamentalist cult-like factions of any belief system. Just like we all know moderate Muslims, and then we know fundamentalists. We've, we know of fundamentalist Islam. So, uh, so yeah, there are, there are fundamentalists and there are cult-like Christians. And, um, but my faith doesn't require that I quit asking questions. And my preacher and the elders in my church do not require that I quit asking questions. In fact, they encourage it. And when I first started talking to Christians a few years ago with an open mind, I realized I had had this stereotype for those 20 or so years that I was in the social justice cult. I had become very, I, I was, ag I always called myself agnostic, but I had become very anti-Christian. There's a real anti-Christian element to social justice mm -hmm. and and I picked up a lot of that and I had these stereotypes and I thought of Christians as dumb and uh, backwards and all, you know, it's embarrassing, but I did think these things. And then as I started to meet some Christians, I'm like, wait a minute, that guy went to Dartmouth. What? Uh, okay. Let me, you know, and I can have a really intellectually stimulating conversation with him. Not that you need to go to Dartmouth to have an intellectually stimulating conversation, but that surprised me because it was outside of my stereotype. Mm -hmm. And then, and then just meeting people who, didn't go to these fancy schools, but who like, like the people we were talking about earlier, who are just more down home in a rural, com rural community who are, who are, uh, I would say the target of a lot of animosity from the uh, elite, those people, some of the smartest people I've met who I had these ideas about again. And I, I just, it, they proved to be wrong. So mm. um, my preacher in particular is a super nerd and he gives his sermons are more about the intel about reason than, than some of the other preachers I've seen before. Mm. And if, I think that appeals to, uh, especially these days to, to people who like me have been somewhat inoculated against Christianity in our culture. It's not like in the Bible, in the times of the Bible, where they're going out and they're preaching about, let me tell you the good word. There was this guy named Jesus, and you've never heard it before. And you're like, oh, this is an interesting story. Nowadays, when people are preaching, you're like, let me tell you about Jesus. You're like, oh, <laughs> like, do you have to? I've heard it. I've heard your word. <laughs> like, Somebody so put some holes in his hands and he, he, came up, he came up three days later. I mean, I, I'm over it. I'm over it. Right. Where you think you already know. Every, that's how I was. I was kind of inoculated against it. So he's great because he he uh, he talks about Christianity from sort of if, if you're in that analytical frame of mind. I mean, 
that broke a lot of my stereotypes too. It was like, oh my gosh, this guy's like, I'm taking notes in his sermons. Like I'm in college class. He's referencing uh, Carl Jung and he's referencing, you know, C.S. Lewis and, and, and Plato and, and just all these different people. So, um, so social justice though, is not like that. Social justice, there's, you can't ask questions and there's not, there's not, uh, it doesn't encourage an excitement to learn. And in, yeah, yeah, I I shut my brain off for twenty years. I didn't even realize it. I didn't realize it until I let my my brain out of that prison, and then you notice the difference. You're like, wow! Like suddenly, the past few years, I'm trying to cram in, like I said, all this dystopian fiction, history. Um, I'm I'm trying to make up for all that lost time where I had really quit reading, except for pleasure reading, like my horror novels, like, like that's <laughs> sort of my, my trashy, uh, fast food, uh, reading. Yeah. I, I was, I would still do that occasionally, but I had quit. I had quit searching for truth. I thought I had found it and I was not allowed to question anything. Well, no that's dissent. What, that's what's so crazy to me because, um, you know, I mean, I, I began to notice, and I, I would say that my, in soft ways, my, um, my uh, my apostasy uh, began in 2009, but I say it, it really accelerated around uh, around 2014 uh, in Gamergate. But then, you know, with the emergence of people, uh, you know, once once I began to discover people, uh, some of the unmentionables like Douglas Murray or Jordan Peterson or Thomas Sowell um, or Victor Davis Hanson. Um, you know, for one, there's this idea on the left that um, in order to be a part of the left, and Jimmy Kimmel once said this, you know, I mean, I think, uh, what's her name, Maisie Hirono down in Hawaii said something similar. Mm. And um, it's this idea that if you are on the left, it is because you are educated. It's because you are more intelligent than the than the average person. And I'm like, these people have never ever heard of Thomas Sowell. They've never heard of Walter E. Williams. They've never heard of Victor Davis yeah. Hanson. There are definitely some heavyweights. You may disagree with them in their assessment uh, on, on things and how they interpret data or how they uh, or how they make inferences about the world that we live in based on their experiences. But to say that these people are, are dumb, that there's no healthy body of, of intellectual thought, um, you know, outside of left-leaning circles is just obviously fallacious once you begin to do any reading. And, and for me, the, um, I mean, I would credit Jordan Peterson with, um, with the beginning of my intellectual journey yes. in a way, because, you know, I began to read these Russian novels. I began to read more fiction. I just, just like you, I'm in the same boat. I'm like, God, I have so much catching up to do yeah. because I'm, I'm a product of American public education, which taught me jack shit about what I really need to know about. And um, it's, it's, it's exciting because on one hand, you say, wow, there is just so much about the world, so much about the past, so much about history, so much about people that I just had no clue about, no clue about. And on top of that, you know, it, it's this, this curiosity and this hunger. I feel like I always feel like I never have enough time. There's never, I have this huge backlog of books. I feel pressured and it's exciting because there's so many new things to learn and, and, and to read about, but it's also very humbling because you're just like, wow, there is just so much that I don't know. Meanwhile, you know, I see with people on, you know, and, I, and, I, and we're both generalizing here, obviously, but people on the, right. on the quote unquote left, um, all you really have, all you really need to be is clever. And maybe somewhat talented. You know what I mean? You don't have to be a 
an especially deep thinker and about a lot of things. Right. You don't have to um, have a sort of nuanced assessment of any current events. You, you just have to be able to make a quick snap. I, I tell the story a lot about um, sort of encapsul encapsulates what I'm talking about is uh, right after Barack Obama won the Nobel Prize. And I think it was like 2009 or so. And um, I was on Facebook. And um, this is before I, I left that cesspit and then decided to return. But uh, oh, I saw your message today. You're going to get banned. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we, we hadn't did a big house now. We, but um, maybe we can get into that later. But, um, you know, but someone pointed out to me that Barack Obama had done nothing to deserve this uh, this um, Nobel Prize. And it's just like the NPC meme. I had that little like sort of now buffering signal, you know, on my forehead. And I, I read that comment, which was objectively true. The man had done nothing to deserve, you know, winning this prize. And all I responded with was, ha ha, you're a hater, close laptop. That was it. In, in my mind, it was just this white person who was just denigrating this black president. And, um, and he couldn't deal with it emotionally. So he had to find out he, he, he dared to come at me with a statement of objective truth in order to counter um, uh, the, the, the success of this black person. And that's kind of what it is. You know, it's just people, they, they want to seem smart. They want to be snarky. They want to be clever. They want to be funny. They want to win points with their friends, yeah. um, you know, and um, it, it's just, I feel like at a certain point, it's just not enough. You know, there, there has to be something deeper, something broader. And this is one of the things that I'm struggling with right now, especially as an artist or just as a person in the world, is just a broader sense of like what, what this all means, what it's all about, and um, trying to grasp a broader scope of things, which is why you read more. It's why you begin to, to you try to understand the past more. And I've said for years, maybe this is part of the reason that I became quote unquote red pilled, but I was, it was ironically reading these old plays and yeah. doing research around these period uh, pieces. And you begin to learn that life for people in ancient Greece or, or uh, Russia in the 19th century or Europe uh, or Britain in the uh, 16th and 17th centuries. Um, sure. Technology was different. Customs were, were different. Languages were different. Um, religions, you know, other belief systems were different, but, but what motivates human beings has essentially remained unchanged for thousands and thousands of years. And for me, that was sort of the beginning of saying like, you know what, you know, we're, we are a part of this huge, this huge kind of human chain as it were. I think that's kind of a, a bad thing to say, but, uh, but like, <laughs> no, I'm all thinking of human centipede. That's the, oh, that's gross. The, <laughs> I know what that is. Yeah, well, should, yeah. Well, I wouldn't have said that, but uh, <laughs> if I was you, but but yeah, but but it's just it's just like you know, there, there's so much more to to know that you don't know, and and you know, mm -hmm. we're not that we're not as far advanced as we think we are. We don't know as much as we think we do, but that takes a certain amount of humility to be able to um, to acknowledge, and I and I find that humility, uh, let's just say, hugely wanting um, yes. among our socio political adversaries. Yes. And, um, and, you know, and you don't really understand um, how deeply entrenched this sort of lack, this enforced uncuriosity, incuriosity is until you come up against it. I mean, Nicki Minaj is experiencing that right now when she she came up and was like, I mean, she basically made a tweet. Um, yeah. 
talking about some uh, vaccine side effects, <laughs> the COVID vaccine side effects. And now, you know, to, to see people like Joy Reid, another black woman coming out and being like, you know, it's, it's just interesting to watch because you, you see you are not allowed to, to leave these sort of these sort of confines. Sam Harris experienced it when he talked yeah. about Islam. He got slapped down, you know, but so now he's back in the uh, Trump derangement camp. Bill Maher starting to kind of creep out right now as far as COVID goes. And he's saying, like, hold on, you know, something something ain't right here. And he's getting all this backlash. And these people they, yeah. who are inside, they, they don't see they how don't they're how, how they're destroying <laughs> They don't know that they're in, some of them don't know that they're in a glass jar (laughs) until they try to get in. They don't realize that they're in that cult-like echo chamber until they take a little step out and they get the huge backlash. And that tells you something. And some of those people, I saw James Lindsay said, you know, maybe Nicki Minaj will end up red-pilled at the end of this. I think that he's right. There is a high likelihood she will, because sometimes you don't realize that you're even owned until you, until you, until you say the opposite of what your owners will allow. Like until you say something that brings their ire, and then all the cultural figures, politicians, media makers like Joy Reid, you know the uh, other entertainers, all the fans who are in the like they're all just piling on, and I think that'll wake you up. In my small, in my small little world when that's sort of what happened to me is when I I started questioning things, like I said, and then after uh, I saw these articles about how we shouldn't have empathy for Trump voters. And then I saw all these people in my echo chamber saying that it was just, he won just because of sexism and racism, period, the end. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. That's not reasonable. That's not rational. So I was sort of trying to have conversations with friends in my echo chamber and and but what about this and what about this and this poll and what about this reason and and i got slapped down by my friends by people in that world who were trying to show me no here's the glass jar you're in you don't step outside of it and that had the opposite effect on me i guess for some people mm. it does keep it gets them back in line but when i realized i was in a prison it's like wait a minute <laughs> i can't have this thought but this is the rational like I've arrived at this opinion rationally and I can argue and explain why. And you can't tell me, you can't seem to defend why I can't say it. Yeah. Or have this opinion. You, you don't even, you're not even going to bother. I thought we were the side of intellect and argumentation and reason. And apparently we're not, you know, this is when I started to realize that I think the very beginnings of realizing it was like a cult or like a, like a, a religion. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's all it's all a big fat lie, Carrie. And yeah. just, it, it it makes me well two things uh, in response to what you said. Uh, one, as far as like, I think it's interesting because as far as someone like Nicki Minaj goes, here is someone who, I mean, how often do you hear the quote unquote woke talk about protecting women of color, right. and then now this woman woman of color, I mean, it's a racist term anyway, but this woman of color, um, similar to uh, Letitia Wright from Black Panther uh, about a year ago. Um, is now experiencing the the, the, oh, the yeah. full wrath, but it's an extension of what always happens in left wing uh, circles, which is anytime and it, you know, and the fact that it's Joy Reid and other people like that that are that are harping on her right now, it is it's another demonstration to me of just how out of touch these people are with the people that they claim to be championing. You know what I mean? Yeah. They 
um, for someone like Joy Reid to try to clown Nicki, I'm like, dude, you don't you she has no Joy has no idea how many black people agree with Nicki Minaj. And I think a lot of blue America, a lot of the woke left, they don't understand because to them, quote unquote, the unvaccinated are just extensions of Trump supporters, essentially. And um, they don't they don't understand who who exactly is is hesitant or just straight out refusing to take the uh, the covid vaccine. But yeah, just shifting gears a little bit. I think what 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 is what's most perplexing to me and maybe to you as well is that, you know, it's this idea that we on the left. Um, I say we, but, you know, I mean, I feel maybe as you do pretty politically homeless. I mean, I, I joke yeah. all the time, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pot smoking pro-choice atheist, you know, who loves battle rap, Judy Garland and show tunes. Like how, how uh, on right, earth does right winger, it, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't match up. It doesn't match up. But, um, it, but this idea of, you know, the, the, um, the, the left, the liberal, so to speak, I, I, I tend to use those terms in, in quotation marks now, especially progressive, you know, I, because I think that being anti-progressive is actually progressive nowadays. But mm -hmm. it, it, this, we're supposed to be, or at least I thought we were supposed to be the, the, the creatives, the anti-authoritarians, the rebels, the people who challenge the system, you know, we come up with all the cool stuff. We create the art. We, we are the ones who control the culture and, and who shape it and push it forward. And yet within the entertainment industry, um, I have, I've just been so, um, particularly within the past year, so I was going to say annoyed, but just confused as to why there are so many people now who are so who are so opposed to like like they're challenging the system but it's it's a system that doesn't really exist and like for instance they're, they're saying that you know we're going to our art is going to make people uncomfortable because we're going to talk about you know uh, trans issues and 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 queer issues and racism mm -hmm. i'm like dude we as a society i feel like we're sort of over that we're moving past that i'm not saying that there's no problems but i think people are saying you know we really have bigger fish to fry and, and bigger concerns to make but here you are you're still saying that you know these battles need to be fought people need to be taught that women are great and i'm like yeah. no i think a lot of people are, <laughs> are sort of looking we've been for, there catch up we we've, we've 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 been there we've done that you know we we understand what you're saying but i just i mean what, what are your thoughts on how am I trying to phrase this question? Because I feel like part of it is the is who the kind of people who are attracted to the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. There's that great um, uh, line from the musical Chicago, which everyone should watch. By the way, it's so fabulous. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do love Chicago. I love Candor and Ebb, and um, you know that it's that that musical actually is is really genius and uh, it's really entertaining, and says a lot about you know the darkness underpinning. Um, our society and our ideas about crime and celebrity worship. But um, there's a line in one of these uh, numbers called Roxy, where, you know, the, the lead, one of the lead characters, Roxy talks about, you know, we're all in show business because um, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, none of us got enough love from our parents, essentially. Mm. And so on one hand, you know, I think there is a truth to that is, um, you know, there's, there's sort of damaged, insecure people that are drawn to the industry. They need to be seen. They need to be liked. They need to be accepted. They need to be validated. Um, there's a great anecdote um, between uh, Dustin Hoffman and Lawrence and Sir Lawrence Olivier, one of the most celebrated actors of the 20th century. 
um, and they were working on a film called Marathon Man. And apparently they were they were eating um, dinner at one point and, and Dustin Hoffman was like, so, Larry, why do we do this? Why do we act? You know, because for people who don't know the life of an actor, you know, you might look at the, the movie stars of the world uh, or series regulars or whatever, or, you know, Broadway stars, television stars, so on and so forth and say, like, oh, that's what actors do. But most actors, I mean, those are the top one or two percent of the industry. Most actors are hustling every day. Um, job security, no matter what level you're at, is um, is a myth. Um, unemployment is the rule, not the exception. Mm -hmm. And it's a very just it's a very hard, arduous, unstable um, and emotionally taxing life. It's very, very stressful. And um, Dustin is like, you know, why are we doing this? You know, why are we beating ourselves up like this? And apparently Laurence Olivier just kind of reaches over the table and gets right in Dustin's face. And is like, look at me, 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 look at me. <laughs> and so there, there definitely is that. There's also people who say, you know, I, I feel like I'm in this category. It's like, you know, it, it's just a cool thing to do. And I really enjoy my job. And um, it's for whatever reason, I, I'm built to do this uh, and do it quite well. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like there is one of my beefs with conservatives or at least more right-leaning people, it's not that they're not in the arts because they reach out to me. They, you know, they can talk about the arts and the importance of the arts, but I think their pragmatism says that, well, you know, you can't have a stable for all the reasons I've just named, well, you, you know, it's, you can't have a stable life. You can't provide for a family. Um, it's not cute being a star, a starving artist in your forties. Um, you know, it's just yeah. not practical. So we're not going to do it. If I want to be an artist, you know, I could paint houses, I could build chairs, you know what I mean? And express myself artistically yeah. that way. I'm like, bro, people ain't trying to hear that, man. Like, you know, <laughs> and then they turn around and they say like, well, look, all the, the libs, they all own the arts and they control everything. And I'm like, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta step up and be, gotta a, take step a, up risk. And be a part of it. You got, you know, yeah. you gotta be in it. And, um, you know, and that's the thing about, I mean, I mentioned this to you before that I, I talk about, um, not so much left and right anymore as um, more of idealists and realists, respectively. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what what appeals to me about the the left and why I think a lot of them go into the arts, because it is a dream. You're you're a dreamer. You're you're someone who is I mean, it's where these utopian sort of visions come from, too, I think. But you're you're but then again, I guess conservatives do the same thing. These these sort of utopian visions of the past and what it was um, before and what traditions have been before, which sort of overlooks you know, again, like I said before, people haven't really changed that much. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there may have been more marriages in the 50s, but it doesn't mean people weren't sneaking out and, you know, getting some on the side, just like they do right. today. Uh, but uh, I, I guess the, 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 the question in this sort of long-winded monologue is that, you know, as far as arts and entertainment goes, I mean, why is it that the people that are supposed to be, why do you think that the people who are supposed to be the rebels, the creatives, the ones who buck the system, why have they mm. become so consumed by it? They've been so, they, they now are the system and they are the status yeah. quo that they, that they claim to want to go against. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a great question. And I, I, I think the answer well, is- Well, answer it, Carrie, just, answer it right they, now. They've, they've become consumed by this cult-like ideology, the same as the rest of society. And so, you know, you'll see it in your Facebook group for uh, soccer moms or, or what, what have you. I've seen people talk about or it it's or knitting or, oh, there's a curly hair group I was in. It just cropped up in the curly hair group. And, you know, it, 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 it's everywhere. And 
it certainly has infected the arts. And I think part of the answer lies in, let me backtrack just a second, because you were asking how it's cult-like. And one of the things I said is that you can't question anything. That is so, that gets right to the heart of, um, of, of, of one of the things that you see, I think in a more pronounced way in entertainment than you see in other places is this desire to fit in, know the right people, go to the right parties mm. and be one of the culturally like in group, one of the, one of the cool kids. And so if the whole, if, if what is in and what is cool has now been infiltrated by a political ideology, well, then suddenly you're going to see people who never had seemed to have any interest in politics whatsoever now speaking this belief system. And I saw that happen in the comedy world. I was, uh, I worked primarily with comedians. My business partner worked with musicians and in the comedy world as a true believer, I worked with comics who were social justice, true believers mm. before it was cool. And so it was, I was pitching them with all, like I was hustling, pitching them with the support of activists I knew and different nonprofits. And I would get them to help promote shows. And, but we really, one of my clients that, that broke right when this started to become mainstream was W. Kamel Bell, who did a lot of social justice comedy. Mm -hmm. And, and then after that, we had a show called Totally Bias was the first show. And after that, I started to see all these other comedians who had never done social justice comedy before because it wasn't cool before. Suddenly they're doing it. Jim Jeffries, Jim Jeffries, the most arrogant, <laughs> you know, yeah. I would have called him sexist and all this stuff in the past. Suddenly he's like woke and doing woke comedy. Uh, Moshe yeah. Kasher suddenly doing woke comedy. They're all doing it now. And it had never seemed to have been of interest to them before. Conan O'Brien, Conan O'Brien this year during really? lockdowns, he had a, he started doing like shows from home and my old client, Debbie Kamal Bell, there's this really creepy video with the two of them where Kamal basically asks him to accept social justice Jesus into his heart. And he does it like right on camera. You get to see a conversion into wow. this cult. Yeah. And it was so awkward. Um, but, but yeah, they're just as susceptible to, you know, if the culture is moving in one direction and it reaches a critical mass where this has become dominant. You know, the the arts and entertainment, I think, is going to be consumed by it as well. Um, a couple of other the, the cult characteristics, it's elitist. Usually there's this elitist mm. thing of like, we are the special, we are the chosen ones, we have this hidden knowledge. And that could be true for a religion as well. It's like, we know the right way to live. I, do, I would say yes. Okay, for anyone keeping score at home, uh, my belief system says, yeah, this is the way to, to live. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And social justice does that too and says this is the way to live but there is a difference in that christianity encourages humility and and you'll see people who are not humble at all who are not who, who say that they're christians but behave a different way with mm. with hubris and arrogance but that's not what jesus said jesus encouraged humility and social justice doesn't even encourage there's no <laughs> encouragement of humility it's all about uh what you're owed what you're entitled to how you were wronged, even if the other person didn't intend to say something offensive, it doesn't matter what their intent was. It's how you perceive it. You know, that's so arrogant. Um, and then it isolates people. It, it, it like a cult. Now my church doesn't do this. My Christian church does not do this, but social justice did this. It encouraged me to whittle my world down smaller and smaller 
and to unfriend mm -hmm. people who were not of my belief system because why they were bad people. And, and, and I hear from people all the time, the ones who are asking for advice on how to get their family members out of it. It's because they're, daughter or son has suddenly cut off contact with him and publicly mm. denounced them, you know, and they're deplorable. They're this, they're that, they're part of the white supremacist patriarchal system. It, it has people cut off contact like a cult right? so that everyone in their world has the same belief system. And you see that in Hollywood and you see that in the entertainment world. And I'm sure you've experienced it. If you have anything now, because it's, it's infiltrated that world. If you have a different opinion, it's just, it's verboten. Even the smallest difference of opinion. I, I got to interview uh, uh, Ethan Von Skyver recently. You should talk to him. He's, he's the DC comic book guy. Uh, oh, you're, cause you're into comics gate or you were, um, well, you were into Gamergate, but he, okay. So he was part of comics gate. He worked for DC. He told me the, the reason his whole cancellation got started because he voted for Trump in 2016. And he said, I was so clueless at that time about where we were culturally and ideologically. I just thought it was like any other election sort of like, well, I know I'm in the minority here. I'm a Republican, whatever, but you know, I just voted, I just voted this for this guy and you voted for that guy. Like no big deal. Hmm. And kind of find out it was a big deal. Like, big this deal. <laughs> yeah. Like you voted for Trump. Like, yeah. you know, now suddenly you're a Nazi. And that, that was, that was different. That was, that was new for him to be treated that way. Um, but that's when this started to take over and to, and to consume all of, all of the entertainment industry. And so I think, I think what's going to happen though, is because we're seeing art is so constrained right now, it's not resonating with audiences. And there has to be a give and take between the audience and the artist. And so you see this on Rotten Tomatoes. The audiences are giving movies terrible scores. The critics are telling us, our betters, the, the anointed are telling <laughs> us, they're telling us this movie's great. Why didn't you dumb plebes like it? You know, we're like, because it wasn't good. It wasn't any good. The yeah. writing wasn't good. You're preaching to us. So comic books, movies, video games, people are getting sick of being preached to through their well, entertainment. I think what's interesting, you know, and, and you just going back a little bit, you talked about how elitist it all is. And it made me think about, um, at least in the mid 20th century in America, you had the rise of playwrights like Clifford Odets, you had Arthur Miller. Um, later on, you had the black playwright, the probably America's most celebrated black playwright, August Wilson. And what all three of them had in common, uh, in addition to being just fantastic, very distinct writers who, you know, I recommend everyone check, check out their work, um, is that they were writing plays about working people or middle-class people. Um, Arthur Miller, Death of a Salesman, um, you know, his famous work, you know, Clifford Odette's Waiting for Lefty, um, August Wilson, just about every single play that he wrote except for his latest one uh, or his last one before he died called Radio Golf. These were all plays about just regular people um, from a, a variety of different walks of life. Um, but these plays, you know, you can do an August Wilson play anywhere in America and that will and it will resonate. I did I did a I did an August Wilson play in Hartford, Connecticut. And I remember at, at our talk back, the um, 
the the person moderating the talk back tried to make it about women in August Wilson's plays. It was very social justice. And I was like, it has nothing to do. I mean, look, one of the criticisms of, criticisms about August Wilson is that, you know, his female characters aren't that great. He was writing primarily about men. There are some great roles in his plays um, for women, but it's, you know, he's, he's writing primarily men. But there, I remember I played this character. It's a play called The Piano Lesson. And, um, and, and the central character, Boy Willie, who I was playing, is obsessed. He's obsessed with selling this piano, which happens to have all of these uh, these ancient car these uh, carvings on 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 the woodwork that mm -hmm. signify uh, their family history. So the the center the central conflict of the story is between Boy Willie and his sister, who does not want to sell the piano because of the legacy and the story of their family that's attached to it. And so. Um, you know, when I approached the role, it was, you know, Boy Willie becomes obsessed by the end, almost violently and maniacally obsessed with selling this piano. And he's unapologetic about it. He's like, this is, he comes out in the top of the play, he comes out, this is what I want, this is what I'm going to do, and this is my right. And what I loved is that at this talkback, there was one white couple who was kind of sitting off this, to the side and, uh, you know, just regular kind of nondescript, um, you know, Hartfordians, I guess maybe that's the word for it. And um, and I was talking about, yeah, boy, Willie, I love about him. He's just unapologetic and he goes after what he wants. And this this white guy was like, he's like, fucking, yeah, he, he goes <laughs> after what, he, you know, because it really resonated with, you know, it resonated with him. You know what I mean? And, yeah. you know, the, the and so I get pissed off because these stories, they're they're human stories. They transcend this race. You know, you can watch A Raisin in the Sun and you watch this family, this black family in the Upper West Side of Chicago, excuse me. The, um, the south side of Chicago, who is struggling, um, you know, and, and I mean, one of the crucial plot points of the play is that, you know, they have this <laughs> representative of this white community that they want to move into, try to pay them to pay the younger family not to move. Um, yeah. Now, it's a specific um, the plays the, the circumstances of the play are specific to that particular time period. But, you know, it, it, and it's going to appeal to black people in a specific way, but anyone can say like, well, that's just unjust. Any, any socially well-adjusted person can see that. But um, so that's just a, a, me kind of getting in the weeds about, you know, this sort of elitism that is in this thing. You know, they're not writing plays anymore that would connect in a way that an August Wilson might no. or that an Arthur Miller might. Um, well, and on top of that, you know, I just want to kind of go back to what you were talking about in terms yeah. of, I don't think a lot of people really understand just how crucial um, relationships and networking and who you know um, are in the industry. So that's part of what drives this group think, which yes. is, you know, especially if you're an actor and you know that you can be replaced at any time. That's just kind of the, 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 the name of the game. And so you don't want to be perceived as difficult. You don't want to be perceived as someone who is a problem, who has a difficult reputation. And you want directors and casting people to say, oh, that person has good energy. I like that person. They, I, they are likable. There's a great um, letter that is attributed to Arthur Penn, who um, is probably is most well-known as a director of um, the Warren Beatty um, and Fade Away, a Bonnie and Clyde film, um, also featuring Gene Hackman. Uh, but he wrote this letter, apparently, that, uh, apparently that was uh, talking about there's too much niceness in, in the theater and how it doesn't create good work. And people are more concerned about hiring people that they get along with and people mm -hmm. that, uh, that are like themselves and laugh at their jokes than they are with actually creating good work. Yeah. And, um, you know, Warren Beatty's actually, uh, I read a biography of his, he is quoted as saying um, on one project, look, if everyone's having a good time, it ain't going to be any good. 
And so there is a huge incentive for just saying yes and being compliant. And especially if you're a performer, because you're at the bottom of the totem pole, it doesn't matter. You, you could be Michael B. Jordan. You're still, you're still just an actor. You're not, you're not an executive. You're not, you know, you're not a head of a studio. Um, your, your popularity is, is finite and contingent upon, you know, what's happening in the culture at any given time. So I just want to kind of uh, really hone in on this, uh, this elitism and the fact that, you know, part of the problem, I think, is that there is this huge, huge desire to be liked and accepted and to get in the good graces of all the powerful people. Um, that's just the nature of, of, of the industry. And also, and I love what you said about, um, because I have been monitoring what's going on in the comic world. And one of the reasons I began to say something um, and to speak my mind is because I feel like the same thing that is happening in the comics world. I mean, how, how can you justify these Marvel films making billions of dollars each, yet they can't even sell the books? They can't sell the yeah. books right now. And um, I'm like, dude, there has to be a certain point where that happens to the entertainment industry uh, yes. at, at large. And, and you see, and, and I, I liken it to pro wrestling increasingly because what's happening with mm -hmm. pro wrestling right now is that the audiences are, are kind of smarter than the people that are making, <laughs> that are putting out the wrestling. <laughs> you know, so as far as entertainment goes, the audiences now are smarter than the people who are making the films, who are making the series yeah. and putting out these plays. And they're way more perceptive. You I mean, you go to these comment sections on any, you know, it could be an Ethan Van Scriver or, a, you know, critical drinker or nerd erotic, any of these other sort of culture YouTubers. And people are, are breaking down these stories, these scripts. They're very, very articulate about what they don't like, what did not mm -hmm. resonate with them. And I say all the time, even if you don't have an Ivy League degree, you don't have a huge you know, IQ or vocabulary, you know what you like and what you don't like. You know how, how something makes you feel, even if you mm -hmm. can't articulate it uh, uh, um, clearly. And like you said, these things are not they're just not resonating increasingly with these audiences. I mean, you know, when, when you're when you're talking about Dave Chappelle or films like Joker are, are trash and yet the audiences are saying like, no, this is like one of the best things I've ever seen. Yes, there's there's a disconnect and there's and there's a problem. And, you know, it, it's just I don't I don't see how that is a positive thing for the industry as a whole. I, I feel like as um, and Camille Paglia makes this great point uh, as well, which I agree with that, that in terms of American culture art, you know, we don't have, we don't have a Renaissance in our background. We have individual creators and cultural movements. You know, if you're talking about maybe Duke Ellington and jazz and musical theater and these kinds of things or hip hop, um, uh, which have developed over time in our own um, writers, artists, um, poets, um, so on and so forth who rise to the top, but, you know, we don't, do we have a Shakespeare? Do we have a, a, a Puccini, a Tchaikovsky, um, a Chekhov uh, to speak of? Do we have a kind of culture which values the arts and views it as anything um, other than utilitarian? And I think that's kind of the problem that we're facing. But but on top of that, it's just this increasing elitism, this increasing sort of cult-like behavior of ostracizing people. And it's, and it's built within the system of, you know, the... The sort of PR system around it as well. It's like, you know, the, the critics, uh, press releases, these journalists who are mm -hmm. saying like, you know, this is the hot actor. This is the film you have to see right now. You need to go in and check this out. This is, you know, this is everyone's buzzing about Quibi, which is which is a monumental success, obviously. Um, I don't you know, know what that is. Exa exactly. You don't know what Quibi is. So Quibi, for those who don't know, 
Quibi was this supposedly, you know, this going to be this new streaming service with like these 10 or 15 minute episodes with like these big name actors. Um, you know, they were putting these people up for awards and, you know, it's going to it was going to be it was going to change the industry. My, my manager, at the, you know, was talking about how it's really, really, you know, there's so much buzz surrounding it. And then it died. It died on the vine. And it's like, yo, people don't want this. To me, it would be an indicator that you you are not really in touch with what people want, because now, especially right now. It's tough because it's not just the movies anymore or TV. People are going to podcasts. They're going to YouTube. Yeah. They're going to Twitch. They're going to video games. They're doing all kinds of things. So it's really inexcusable right now to be to continue to be this disconnected from your audience. Even as an actor, we, we were trained like, you know, we we are supposed to serve. Hey, Tiger, we're supposed to serve the the writer. I'm like, no, bro, we're supposed to serve the audience. You know, and and that I, I don't know where that got lost somewhere along the, along the lines. I feel like part of it, maybe it's because there is a huge sort of anti-capitalist, um, explicitly Marxist streak in a lot of people who are in the industry. Um, they don't they don't like the idea that what we are doing is customer service. Um, but you know, you can't you can't hate on your audience and expect them to support you. It's, it's just like you know, well. If the food is bad in my restaurant, it's because your taste buds are fucked up. That's what they're. That's kind of what they're. What they're saying right now to people, and um, I just that just doesn't. It's not sustainable to me. Which, by the way, I think betrays one of the biggest hypocrisies about Marxism, and and that's whether you're talking about the class-based Marxism of old or this new kind of identity-based Marxism. Currently, is that it's actually a top-down elitist ideology. Mm -hmm. where they claim to be speaking, it's coming from up here, from our betters, from the anointed, from, in, in the case of the new identity-based Marxism, the social justice Marxism, it's coming from the elite universities. That's where I was indoctrinated at Duke University over 20 years ago. And then, they, but it claims to be about all these oppressed groups and oppressed people. And yet, and yet, how do they treat the masses, all the oppressed people? They treat them with contempt. And I have, they I have hate to say, them. I just sorry, sorry to sorry to cut in really quick, yeah. but um, you know my my current job. I interact. You know, I'm, I'm in Atlanta. Lots and lots and lots of industry people are down here, and um, they a lot of them are very nice. I will say that, but a lot of them are also some of the most snide, pretentious, snobbish people, and. You can just you can tell I'm like you you've never struggled a day in your life you've you know you're you're you don't worry about where your next meal is coming from you, you know you're surrounded by people right now who are telling you that you're that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread you're making your money mm -hmm. and yet I see the way that you talk to you know me you talk to my coworkers because you view them as beneath you yes. and it's just um you know it's 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 easy to be a socialist when you have millions of dollars isn't isn't it it is. It's actually, it's sort of like, I'll give you an anecdote from the entertainment world. I won't say who this person was, but uh, used to put on a lot of huge celebrity studded galas, like red carpet and made sure there's always photographers there, you know, whether uh, she was raising money for Haiti or whatever these, and it all had to be photographed. It all had to be documented but then in terms of how people were paid, the help was paid at these events. Didn't really make sure they even got their checks. You know, there was mm. this sort of like, it wasn't an important thing. Same person used to 
in New York, um, their entourage had a specific limo driver that they would always book. And he had, he had put both of his daughters through college, just limo driving and stuff, just a really a workaholic and a really dedicated dad, but you know, a limo driver. And she had told her staff at one point, I don't know why you're always booking him. Please quit talking to him. He's just the driver. And now this is a person whose public outward facing persona is humanitarian, raising money for uh. all these different charities. But then when you see how they behave in real life to people, and, and there's so many stories like that. It doesn't even matter who that person is. There's so many people like that in Hollywood where it's just, they're just hypocrites. You know what they are? Let's relate it back to uh, religion again. They're like the Christian hypocrites. They're like the old school in the Bible, the Pharisees who stand on the street corners and pray so that they may be seen praying by everyone else. Mm. Hypocrites. And that's in any belief system. And yeah, I mean, it's just, how did I get on that? Sorry. (laughs) I just, uh, I think anyway, hypocrisy. Oh, just the way they look down their nose at people. Like you said, this sort of uh, elitism and, and, you said that you can tell like, oh, you've never, you've never worried about where your next meal is coming from. And yeah, I think it's like, you can get so divorced from the struggles of the average man that you just become a monster. And, and look at, look at the, take it back to the Met Gala again. You've got these very wealthy, powerful members of the elite class are betters. They're there at the gala. They have different rules for themselves than they do for the helpers. They're not wearing masks and they're wearing these fancy gowns and it costs $30,000 to get in. And then look at what they're wearing. They're putting slogans on their dresses. There's the one New York Congresswoman, uh, Carolyn, uh, what's her name? Mahoney or something. Maloney, Carolyn Maloney, Maloney. She has a huge dress that says equal rights for women. And she's standing there. And then there's all these women, mostly wearing the masks, wearing the masks. It's like equal rights for some women. Am I right? Like you don't have a mask on (laughs) and all those other women do. And, and then AOC, of course, her dress said tax the rich. And it's like, they're so like, read the room. You're so divorced from reality at that point. And I think this to take it back to art for a second like you're saying, I think they're so disconnected from their audience. And, and you were speaking of these playwrights who really wrote about the common universal human experience and could write about the common man. So many artists now, once they reach, I used to see this with comedians. I think you have to be grounded before you become famous and not that most people are not. And so Every once in a while, I would see someone, I think Dave Chappelle is an exception. I think he is a very grounded person or and tries hard to hang on to that. Maybe he'll lose it one day. But so far, I think he's been trying desperately to stay grounded. Yeah, There are other people who just not grounded at all. And once that level of fame and power and butt kissing has gone to your head, you don't even live in the same world as other people. I think sometimes your art can suffer because you don't remember what it was like. I had a comic who... She used to joke that she thought her oven was a a very large clock um, because she'd never cooked. And it's a funny joke, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, she, she didn't go to the ATM for herself. You know, there are people who go to the, like, you don't have any common, you don't even know what it's like to be a common person anymore. What are your jokes going to be about when you get to that level? Well, you know, and it's just, um, 
it, it was such a huge eye opener for me uh, when I left New York and then I came to Atlanta. And, you know, Atlanta is a weird kind of a city. It's not it's not exactly red, but it's also not exactly blue either, I would say. And um, the one of the things that began to really irritate me as I, you know, we for those who don't um, who aren't aware, who aren't in the industry, you know, one of the ways that the industry sort of coped, um, particularly the theater industry um, over the course of the past year before they decided they were going to um, uh, discriminate against people because of uh, whether or not they took a vaccine, is that, you know, we were doing these readings and rehearsals over Zoom, which you just, you, which is impossible to do. But I would, on breaks, you know, I would just listen to these actors talk to each other. And um, the sort of things that they would say, you know, I would listen to their, their well-crafted speech um, the, the, what's the term I'm going to look for? I mean, you know, sort of, um, effete, um, delicate, very, you know, clearly educated, well-spoken. I'm like, these pampered people are sitting there and they are shitting all over the kinds of people that I see, because I'm someone who actually went out and got a job when the industry mm -hmm. shut down. And so I'm working alongside people night after night. You know, they're working 10, 12, 14 hours. Their eyes are bloodshot. Their, their feet hurt. Their knees ache. Their backs uh, are, are in pain. And they're exhausted. And yet they're still there day after day after day, busting their ass, just trying to, trying to make it and trying to better their lives. And yet here are these pampered people begging for money from the government, not doing anything to fight for their livelihoods. Meanwhile, you have gym owners, restaurateurs who are trying to, who are fighting their government's tooth and nail, you know, hair, hair stylists just to stay open and preserve you know, what it is that they do for a living and to see these people in our industry sneering down at these people. And part of it is systemic, really. There was an article some years ago that came out and it was a British uh, publication about how acting is becoming a really posh profession. And when you think about it, you know, the only way to be a successful actor, at least, at least on a grand scale, you know, it's one thing if you're in a city like Chicago or Seattle or Washington, D.C., especially, which, which are great towns for theater actors. But if you want to have a career, you have to either go to Los Angeles or New York City. Now, who can afford to work, to not work for extended periods of time in cities like Los Angeles and New York yeah. City? You have to have a certain kind of pedigree, come from a certain kind of background in order to focus exclusively on auditioning, on taking classes, on, you know, on doing workshops and readings that don't pay well for, you know, taking, for being able to take jobs off Broadway, even though they're, they're prestigious institutions off Broadway, but they pay less than unemployment. You know, you, you have to be of a certain kind of cash, cachet or a certain echelon to be able to, to sustain that. And so I think this goes back into what I was saying. You know, it's just you can who can afford to be an artist in these in these great cities. And I think that's mm -hmm. part of why you're seeing this sort of balkanization of people who are disconnected from, you know, as we're saying, the, the common person, because they 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 just don't live that life. That, you know, they may have come from that life, but they don't. I mean, George Clooney was talking about how. Um, you know, in, in his uh, uh, Trump derangement was like, you know, actors are people who they, they come from the Midwest. And yet I'm like, dude, 
you you are part of this elite you know you're trying to play like you're a part of you know the, the every man like bro you're george clooney you're one of the most handsome men on the planet you have a, a hot wife who like has a harvard degree and is super you know high iq or whatever you're not you know you're not speaking for the average person and but that's the sort of dominant ideology of the industry i still i feel like the sort of becoming or it's become systemic and, and partly because um Culturally, you know, I mean, I'm the only performer in my family, the only artist in my, you know, in my family. You know, it's just not a, really a thing if you come from a certain uh, racial and or socioeconomic background. And um, there, there's just there's a certain financial threshold. It just really, really helps to be to not have to worry about working when and just focusing on auditioning. And I think that's it's and I, I guess, as I said before, it's, it's really easy to be a, a socialist or a Marxist when you've got money. And, yeah. um, you know, and that that ideology, I feel like is just rampant in the industry. And it's weird because you have all these people who there are people who came from nothing and then they got rich and um, then they forget, they forget. <laughs> where, they, where they came from. They forget. And I think that in a way, sometimes they glomming onto social justice ideology is a way for them to sort of ease their guilt for having amassed all of this fame and wealth mm. um, and, and, and maybe, maybe feeling like it, it, because, because part of it is hard work and part of it is luck sometimes if you come from, you know, and, and so for whatever portion of it is luck, I think sometimes people, maybe they feel guilty about that. Can I, can, they, I, can I say something yeah. like that real quick? Sorry, because yeah. the, it's sort of off topic, but the idea of luck, is anathema to these people. They they want to feel as though they are special. And yeah. the fact of the matter is, I mean, Stella Adler is one of the most, um, is a legendary acting teacher. Who stu her students include Benicio Del Toro, uh, De Niro, uh, and Brando. And she said about Marlon Brando, there were people that I taught who were more talented than Marlon Brando was, but they didn't get the same kind of breaks that he did. Mm -hmm. And I say that to say that I think part of part of the attitude you see in these industries is because people need to feel as though they are special. And if you come down and you, and you say to somebody, well, you know, the only reason you got that job is because the other actor got injured and wasn't available. They ain't trying to hear. I mean, you know, I mean, Hugh Jackman yeah. was not the first choice for Wolverine. Uh, Michael J. Fox was not the first choice for Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just people really need to feel like they are. And it's not to say that people like Tom Cruise, I mean, I love Tom Cruise or Tom, uh, Tom Hanks or Denzel Washington. They're very distinct. Um, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman. Um, I mean, just the idea that someone like a Denzel or a Morgan Freeman, we didn't know who Morgan Freeman was till he was in his forties. Is that justice? Yeah. No, it's not. No, it's you know not. what I mean? So like, you know, it's so, it's so a big part of it is luck, but no one wants to talk about that because then they don't get to feel like they're the special sort of That's anointed true. people. But I think some of them feel it, even though they maybe are not cognizant of it. And so then they get the social justice ideology makes them feel like good people. They're easing this guilt in some way. I mean, right. and that's the other. They're atoning the way, that, for their sins. They're atoning because they get to go out and say, um, I'm speaking on behalf of oppressed groups. And they also get to divorce it, by the way, from actual power and, and to divorce it from wealth because they make it all about race and sex and sexuality and then it's sort of a, it's like, well, think about Peggy McIntosh. She's the woman who wrote, she's the white woman, very wealthy family. 
in the top 1% of the 1% who coined the phrase white privilege. There's something about that essay and about her guilt that I think she's trying to wrestle with there that probably feels very good to put it all on, to share it, to share it with a whole identity group. It's like, I don't have to feel guilty about any unique individual privileges I've had or any luck that I've had in life. I can say, um, we all have this, right guys? Like, it's like, it's my whiteness. You don't, Peggy McIntosh doesn't share. I'm sure she likes to believe it, but the majority of her privileges that she experienced in her life, she didn't share with this big group of people called white people. Mm. The majority of your privileges you shared with people who were in that same specific uh, wealth and culture group and the part of the U.S. you were from. And, and, and that's more of what you had in common with people, but that, I don't know. I think there's something about spreading. I'm, I'm probably on a tangent here, but there's something about spreading the guilt around and the shame around that I think makes that eases some of this feeling that, that people might have if they achieve wild amounts of fame or success. That's like, well, but at least I'm out here speaking on behalf of the oppressed, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm still normal and, guys. Look how normal and relatable and down to earth I am. And I'm fighting right. on behalf of, uh, of, um, of the people. I have the um, right religion. It would be like, you know, Christianity, you mentioned that in the eighties or nineties, it was sort of the Christian fundamentalists were the loudest about like what you, what you could, we you shouldn't listen to this. You shouldn't dress this way. And, and these things are bad and this should be banned. And they were the, the culturally the fundamentalists and things have switched. There's a new religion in town that are the fundamentalists. And so yeah. it, it would be almost as if all of as if, you know, imagine the eighties and nineties is everybody's trying to, uh, prove that they're a good person by talking about what a big, great Christian they are. Well, now it's, it's about how woke they are. That's like, that's okay. I'm a good person because I'm going to talk, and I'm going to talk about how woke I am so that you guys all know I have the right religion. Um, Christianity is old fashioned now. Well, I've been saying for years that these people are the, they're the left wing version of the Christian evangelicals we used to make fun of during the Bush yes. years. And they don't, they don't see it like, and, and my big thing, and you know, we, we I know we got to wrap uh, a okay. little bit shortly, but like my big thing is that these people, like, they're not cool anymore. You know what I mean? Like, they, no. they ain't cool. like I was um, going back to Dave Chappelle, as a matter of fact, first of all, I mean, I saw him First time I saw Dave Chappelle, I think I was like, I was, I think I was 10 years old and he was on Star Search. He was 14. And, um, you know, I was like, this dude is really funny. He's been doing comedy his whole life. He, he came from D.C., you know, not not an easy city to beat to live in if you ain't got money. So I think that's part of why he's kind of grounded the way that he is. But after he released Sticks and Stones, his, uh, his latest uh, comedy special, or one of his most recent comedy specials, I, I was hanging out at a little gathering, a holiday gathering. Um, of a bunch of black alumni from the conservatory that I went to. And I was such uh, an odd man out because you had all these people who back when, you know, in the early 2000s, the Dave Chappelle, Chappelle show was a, was a shit. And it was making all this important social commentary. And, and you know, he was one of the greatest comedians of, of, of our age. And then all of a sudden, now these same fucking people are turning around and saying, I don't know, man. I just, I felt like he was like punching down and like, you know, he was just so like, I'm like, dude, y'all is y'all are not cool no more. Y'all ain't cool. Y'all a bunch of lames. You know what I'm saying? Like they just y'all they're sitting there writing think pieces about Dave Chappelle's comedy. I'm like, you 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 are the reason that he actually made the special in the first fucking place, because you're so just you're so stodgy. You're so 
hemmed in. You're square. That's what that's what we used to say. You're, you're just a bunch of squares. But y'all think yeah. that y'all are like on the vanguard of changing the culture. Yeah. And it's insane. So I, I guess the, my, my final question is, um, you know, I mean, where do you see this all going as far as entertainment? I mean, I personally, I feel like um, in the same way that people like Tim Poole and, you know, or Joe Rogan, they're they're beginning to undermine the cathedral, as it were. Um, no offense to my religious friends, uh, uh, my religious company, but uh, hmm. they are, you know, I mean, Tim and other independent journalists, uh, you know, or, or people like Matt Taibbi, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald going to Substack and those kinds of um, independent ventures. It, it appears that they are really, really putting some uh, uh, I won't say that word, some holes in the armor, as it as it were, yes. this sort of uh, ideology. And I think that's encouraging. Yeah. Um, but do you see the same thing? And, and, you know, as far as people like Ethan Van Stuyver, I mean, the comics world is also doing yeah. it with their with their crowdfunding. And they're, I mean, they're making gobs. And I think Ethan, didn't he just publish, didn't he just buy a, um, a new warehouse? Probably. Um, I know he sold, I think, a million copies of Cyberfrog. See, and that, that is incredible. And yeah. what I love about right now is that we have a, we live in a society. Uh, we have a system <laughs> where you as an artist or an independent person can put out what you do. You can create what you do and you can cut out the middle people, cut out the executives, cut out, you know, uh, your agents and managers, your representatives, lawyers, cut out all these people and say, you have a direct relationship with the consumer of your, of your content and the consumers of your material who just say, you know what? I really appreciate what you do. You don't talk down to me. I even may disagree with you, but you know, I think you're really good at what you do. And I'll, I'll throw you a few bucks here and now just to, just to support you and see more of you. That's such a beautiful thing. And I feel like that really has power to really undermine this sort of ironclad, um, Orthodox, creative, <laughs> yeah. artistic prison that we see ourselves in now, this orthodoxy. So, I mean, wh where do you see this going now? I think that they're going to be, because, because the mainstream culturally dominant art world, and that's whether you're talking about boobies or music or comics or whatever, because it's so infested with this fundamentalist, puritanical, woke ideology, it's really stifling creativity it's it's stifling artists um and it's also not satisfying the public and so what we're going to see are more renegades more brave artists who buck the status quo who who build an actual resistance and a drunk 3po says welcome to the rebellion you know who who mm. join the rebellion and contribute their talents and their artistic gifts and their creativity to freedom of expression and to getting back to trying to do art that is not afraid to question and not afraid to break taboos and not afraid to punch up. One thing about woke scolds like those people you're talking about, they have their, they have their directions wrong. Dave Chappelle mm. was punching up. He was punching up at the cathedral. He was at punching them, yeah. up at you guys. He was yeah. punching up at you betters, you moral superiors, you Puritan scolds on your high horses. He was punching up. The, your misconception is that you think you're on the bottom. <laughs> While, how do you think you're on the bottom? You gotta look down your nose at all of us. Yeah. Clearly you're not on the bottom guys. Like that's delusion. And uh, so he was punching up. And so I think we're gonna have, anyway, I think we're gonna have more people. We've seen it in comics. We've seen it uh, with Ethan Van Skyver's great example. We're starting to see it in music. Tom McDonald is doing completely anti-woke rap. 
and he's topping the charts on iTunes with the whole cathedral against him. He's getting number one songs. He's beating out people who are pushed up and, and promoted by the cathedral. And he's the opposite, hit pieces on him, calling him all kinds of names, calling him white supremacist, whatever. And, and everyone on the outside of the system is supporting him. There are rap reaction videos, like all the top channels doing his videos, talking about him. And he does everything himself, no label, no publicist, none of that stuff. He builds his own sets. He and his girlfriend make their own music. So we've seen it in the music world. There is a scalability problem with the film world, yeah. as you know. So I think it's gonna come last for film where we start to see, once the culture starts to shift and all these people you're talking about who are breaking these ceilings, these woke ceilings, once enough of that ceiling is broken, I think you'll get some big money behind doing some wrong think. And then what happens when wrong think becomes popular, then we just have to make sure that doesn't become a cult. <laughs> like, you know, so. Well, I can't think of a better way to uh, end our conversation, Carrie. It's been so uh, lovely reconnecting with you, although I don't, we were never really disconnected. Um, uh, where can people find you and how can they get in touch with you if they choose to do so? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at KSE Mama Jamma. I need to come up with a better name. I never thought I would need it. <laughs> I didn't know I would need to be followed. I was just like, I'm just. So I, anyway, it's still for the time being, it's KSE Mama Jamma. And, uh, and then online, you can find us at unsafespace.com. And wherever we're currently on a two week suspension from YouTube, that happens frequently. So, but wherever we're at, you'll find it on our website. We're streaming on Odyssey right now. Um, it's on our website. We have a book club on Unsafe Space. We have, we're starting a problematic film club, which I would love to have you join sometime. Oh, that'd be great. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, thank you so much, Clifton. You're one of my, my favorite people that I met online who's now become a real life friend. So oh, I appreciate well. it. Well, I, I appreciate that, Carrie, and uh, I appreciate all of you for watching this inaugural podcast of uh, <laughs> the inaugural podcast. It doesn't really have a name. It's just the, the inaugural uh, Clifton Duncan podcast. Uh, hashtag CDP. 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 CDP.